0: This podcast is a project of the Climate Designers Network.
1: Hey, this is Eric. Welcome to a very special edition of Climify, supported by the AIGA design educator community. It's the third and final episode in our education trilogy with two knowledgeable and experienced design educators, Rebecca Mendez and Holly Robbins, who have been teaching sustainability and climate action for years. Today, I'm asking them to help you become a climate design educator through a sharing of their resources, strategies, and examples from their classes. I invited this panel today based on a lot of reasons. One, of course, was their experience, but also their unique experiences with teaching graduate and undergraduate design students. There are very different techniques and skills when teaching a design class to a younger group or one that are more seasoned. Also, Rebecca is at a Public Research One University, UCLA, while Holly teaches part-time while running her design studio, This Is Folly, at a private art school, Minneapolis College of Art and Design. These differences in their experiences turned into a lot of similarities throughout the discussion today. That was heartening to me and exciting for the opportunities that exist in whatever college or university you teach it. Finally, and maybe most importantly, this episode is your homework. Yes, your homework. Give it a listen and prepare yourself for a live event later this summer of 2023 sponsored by the AIGA DEC, where you can ask questions to the panelists and receive very specific guidance to your situation. So keep an eye out here and over at educators.aiga.org. That's educators.aiga.org for more details.
2: I am Rebecca Mendez. I was born and raised in Mexico City, and I came to the United States to study when I was 18. I am currently professor and chair at uh, UCLA Design Media Arts Department. I am also a founder and uh, director of the Counterforce Lab which is a laboratory dedicated to utilizing art and design for uh, engaging with the ecological crisis and its ties with environmental justice. Um, I am an, as an artist, I am an interdisciplinary artist, designer, and I examine reciprocal relations and environmental justice in a multi-species world in the midst of climate change, mass extinction, and a ravaging extractivist society. You can find me at mendes.com, at counterforcelab.org, and at dma.ucla.edu.
3: My name is Holly Robbins and I'm a graphic designer and I'm an instructor in the Minneapolis College of Art and Design Master of Arts of Sustainable Design program. I have my own design firm with a partner called thisisfolly.com, and we work out of Minneapolis. Um, you can find the program at mcad.edu.
1: Rebecca, Holly, welcome to Climify and this special edition episode co-sponsored by the AIGA Design Educators Community uh, I'm very happy to have you here, and we're. I'm actually um, ready to learn because you, you two are um, really good at what you do, and and you're teaching um, the the topic that we've been talking about on this season and the rest of the seasons on Climify. So welcome.
2: Thank you, Eric.
1: One of the first things I wanted to ask both of you is what led you to become design educators. Uh Holly, I, I know you do this uh as a part-time and you have run your own studio. So I'll start with you first. And uh what what led you to also teach?
3: We basically I looked around and realized that the things that I had been teaching myself and sharing with um our local chapter of the AIGA um wasn't being taught anywhere. Mm. And in truth, I really got tired of having the same sort of remedial conversations over and over again and realized that unless people had some of the fundamental principles of sustainability that I had learned, those conversations were never going to be productive. And so, in conversation with another one of our founding instructors who had sought me out uh, because she'd heard that I was working on um, issues of sustainability. We sat down and had lunch, and I was telling her my frustrations, and she's like, did you ever think about teaching? And it never had occurred to me whatsoever, and so you can um, you can blame my friend Wendy
1: <laughs> for that. Well, then, we thank, we thank your friend Wendy.
3: <laughs> and we had started doing a couple of workshops um, with one of the other founding faculty, um, and we basically... This, the workshops were so successful, we were doing it under the auspices of, of MCAD, and we were bringing in um, some product designers from outside the area, and they were doing a, you know, kind of a life cycle assessment workshop. And it was so successful that we did it a couple of times, and then MCAD was just starting to build its online capabilities. And so that seemed perfect for me, working full-time, running my own studio, or at the time I was actually working at Target. So not being, I could never show up during the day in a classroom, but to teach online asynchronously was perfect. And we just started building classes and they just kept filling up. And before long, we became a certificate program and then became a an accredited master's. But really the impetus was nowhere in the world did I see a program like ours, yeah. you know, where we're, we're looking around, seeing what really needs to be taught. We're teaching it in a um, discipline agnostic way. So my, our assumption is in undergrad, you learned how to design whatever, whether it be a building, fashion, packaging, whatever it was you learned how to do, but you never learned how to do it sustainably. So we developed a universal approach that you can come in, whatever your background is, including entrepreneurs and marketing people, and understand these basic, underlying principles of sustainability and then design for sustainability we've basically defined what we think that means and built what we think are the tools and strategies and tactics and approaches that put it all together and gleaned from lots of different places and then put it together in a way that when designers come out of our program we feel like they can go out into the world very practically, go right back into their jobs or move on to new jobs and actually start designing the future that we need. Everything needs to be redesigned. Um, yeah. Everything that we have currently was designed under a linear take-make-waste model, and we need to have everything work in a cyclical model. We need to be concerned about material health. All of these kinds of things is what we teach them, and, and uh, it's very um I came from a polytechnic background, and so, you know, it's very designery, practical um, stuff that you can actually go out and practice.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm very much into the practical, too, so I appreciate that work you're doing. Do you have a similar story to that, or how did you get into uh, the world of academia
2: it's interesting. No, very different. I I, I loved hearing um, you speaking, um, Holly. It's uh, such an interesting trajectory. I was, as you were speaking, I was thinking, well, how did I get to teaching? And I remember uh, my father in Mexico, he created a primary school. He just was not happy the way that education was going on in, in uh a lot of the, uh, you know, the regular standard education. So he began learning about alternative ways of teaching from Waldorf school of, you know, all other ways that would be much more audiovisual. And I began teaching there, right? I I started teaching in the summers and it came so natural to teach. And then I was teaching gymnastics and teaching all kinds of things. And then, you know, I kind of understood that there was something I loved doing, and that was um, sharing the knowledge that I was acquiring and actually even learning primarily from, um, in, you know, being in discussion. So when I came to the United States, I studied at Arts Center College of Design. And then um, very soon after graduation, I was called back by Paul Holge, my director. And he said, Rebecca, do you want to come and teach the... Um, Summer Institute, I, I think it was what, I, I don't remember what they would call it, maybe Art Center at Night or, or mm. Saturday High, Saturday High, I think I remember. And I started teaching design at 21, right? And I didn't think wow. that I could do this and, and, and it was great. And then immediately after I started teaching in the main program, many of the students were older than I was and for sure spoke better English than I did but i continue to teach at art center for 20 something years i mean I, I, it really was on and off for a long time and then i started teaching at uh, ucla uh, when i was um when i was brought in as tenure faculty um that was 2003 so teaching has been all the time all in my life for for uh uh from very early on uh, you know when you do your some of the tests of what's your personality,
4: yeah, it always
2: comes out as a teacher. Right? Oh, yeah. So there's something about that that it's always there. You are meant to be. So what? Yes, but what was interesting as I was hearing you, Holly, for example, when I've been teaching is always within programs of graphic design or programs like he, that was at Art Center, in which the projects were are very much like you were saying, you know, design a chair, design this, design a poster, design a brand. But never really from the point of view of sustainability, Uh but it was always more like, you know, the way in which you are kind of more uh, focused in industry. And that bothered me. I thought I had chosen the worst career being a designer because to me it was too commercial. And I didn't feel like I was actually engaging my whole humanity and what mattered to me in the world. So um, I began doing, as an artist and as a designer, I began doing work around social issues. So for me, design as a social force became a way, my entry point into being able to engage with my community, with my society, with my planet and my fellow, you know, (laughs) companions of other species. And as an artist was how I started exploring those areas, right? You know, for me... Uh, entering into interspecies friendships with wild animals has been so much my impetus for at least, you know, a few decades. And so that kind of began propelling my way of entering through my fine art. And I started teaching from that platform. So I've been teaching within the design media arts program. I, I created a sequence of courses around ecological arts and justice, because it really wasn't the focus. So, but and I created my Counterforce Lab to then uh, have much more of the uh, what I was learning and um, what I was um, implementing in my artwork to really be focused in education. So the Counterforce Lab, um, it's the place where we have students from all over the campus. I even started connections with the Institute of Environmental Sustainability here at UCLA. With the laboratory of environmental narratives, that it is uh, also part of the humanities. So I'm in the networks now. It's really university wide, and it's so exciting to see that you're not alone in this endeavor. So in your program, Holly it must be so exciting to know that it is the entire, yeah. you know, cohort, your teachers that are, um, with the same uh, uh, direction. So anyway. I don't thought.
1: <laughs> no, you it's fine. And and you both addressed one of the big reasons why myself and the AIGA chose you. You know, you come from um, private and, and public institutions, small and large, and you are tackling one of if not the most important issues connected to that in in the world at the moment. And as this show, like Holly said, it's designed to be practical for our listeners in terms of hearing how you're doing at your different um, colleges and universities so that if they're in a similar place like you, they can take what you know and apply it to where what they're doing. And, and I hear from a lot of educators saying they want to do what you two do. They don't have enough time to learn it all or to learn a little bit. So today we're going to give them some good healthy soup, right? For, from you two. And and so I'll get started right away because I'm interested how how each of you teach the topic of sustainability and climate and uh environmental justice uh to your students and, and in that, what what's really working well for you?
3: One of the uh, for me the basis of design for sustainability is a couple of things. But the most important, I think, is critical thinking skills. Mm-hmm. So that's one of, the, one of the elements that we really teach, I think, um, because we're really trying to turn people out who can go out and understand anything new that gets thrown at them. So rather than, like, in the past, lead, which was great, but it really was just sort of a set of guidelines that you needed to follow and check things you had to check off. That's not our approach at all. We're really trying to teach students how to think about sustainability. And I like to think that when they come out of the program, they no longer think in the same way that they did when they came in. They're like completely different people and they can't ever go back to being able to ignore all of those things. Cause we're teaching, again, the critical thinking skills so that they can really kind of wade through all of this scientific and technical and political information that comes flying at them and all the misinformation, you have to be able to wade through all that. So that's really important to be able to discern what the truth is or what what yeah. is actionable. Uh, and then we uh, base everything in life cycle thinking, which is another way of saying circular. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, everything... You have to think about not just one aspect of something when you're designing it, but the entire life cycle, like where did the materials come from and under what conditions and where did that energy come from that ran that and who was involved in that and where was that and, you know, every phase along the way, what happens in the use phase. And we make them evaluate all of that and try and figure out where the best place to intervene in that life cycle is. So, and then underlying that is systems thinking.
1: Yeah. Do you have a map out a system? Yes.
3: It's a core skill. They have to do it in almost every class. They do it in different ways. You know, they're mapping out material life cycles They're mapping out their own um, things that they design. They have to evaluate them and uh, they do life cycle analysis on things so that they can really begin to understand, you know, they don't get that deep into it. And like if you were a a Target or a Nike or somebody like that, you could hire people to do the real technical aspects of that, but you need designers to look at that and understand how to interpret that and then apply that. Um,
1: Yeah. Yeah. The life cycle analysis can be super complicated and I wonder how you do it there at MCAT.
3: We actually do it in several different ways. We use different software. Um, we've used the Ocala Guide and Sustainable Minds, which is a software package. Yeah. It's based on the Ocala guide. But there's other systems out there. There's Gabby, there's Pre, you know, those are all the heavy data entry kinds of things. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what system you're using, as long as you can understand how these things work and how that data works. Like for example, I had a student that was working for a window company in Europe. And he came to us from Europe because he couldn't find a program like ours um, there even. And so he was working for this company. He was a product designer. They wanted him to kind of work out with their their expert. They had their own internal expert tracking all this data. But without someone coming in with a different mindset of of really looking at this data and trying to figure out, well, what can you do with this? What does this mean? Um, the data was kind of useless. It was just sitting there. Sure. And so coming in with a different mindset, he actually was able to analyze it and showed them how, you know, for example, windows are super focused on energy efficiency. So you have these companies putting millions of dollars into little iotas of improvement in energy efficiency, but ignoring the entire rest of the landscape, ignoring all the potential business threats, ignoring all the material threats and more you know, ignoring what would happen if somebody passed a law that said, now you had to take back all of those materials. They had no concept of any of those things, and they didn't even know where their worst impacts were. So he had he identified what was the worst impact in their whole life cycle so that they could actually focus on that and make improvements. But no one would have done that if they hadn't kind of come at it with a holistic look and really trying to figure out and, and thinking about it in terms of a life cycle, you know, as the energy, you know, the energy efficiency made a difference when your whole um, energy grid was based on coal and nuclear energy. But once you start to go to renewable energy, those those tiny incremental improvements in energy efficiency are kind of irrelevant compared to all yeah. of the other issues going on. So it really changed their whole
4: business focus, right?
3: Yeah. And so that's the kind of thing that we teach. It's like, you know, you have to really dig deep. To understand, you know, reframe the problem and really understand what problem you're trying to solve. Um, and so too often people are so focused on end of life or just energy and not really looking at the whole thing. Yeah. So um, let's see, from my side, I think that um,
2: what I began doing was incorporating uh, the idea of, you know, environmental um justice, uh, with classes that were very simple, like the classes were word and image or a class on advanced topics on communication design. Um, many of them of course are very open in terms of the subject matter that we teach as, much, as long as we teach certain, you know, very basic, uh, uh, and strong core, uh, graphic design, uh, and communications knowledge. So in my Word and Image course, what I began doing was to give them uh, the projects to first, because we are in a research university, the research part of the projects are usually two to three weeks, right? We do in-depth yeah. research of everything, like we give them a lot of reading. We I bring speakers from across campus to, you know, some of them uh, uh, to speak about Uh, especially exactly like the life cycle, right? It's like, what is this, this sustainable life cycle? And at the same time, what's really interesting is that UCLA, uh, was, was at the time, uh, let's say 10 years ago, right? I'm talking about when I started teaching my classes in this manner. We connected with the, uh, UCLA sustainable sustainability office. So also we were talking about administration, like staff, right, the people that yeah. are running and making sure that we are going to the zero waste uh, uh, um, a goal. And so it's very academic in some ways, but very practical in the others. So that both of them were coming to do the presentations and explain to us what all of these cycles were. And one of the projects that was the most effective was then, okay, given what you know, one of the things that we did was do an audit of the waste of Powell Library. We were in bunny suits and going through all the trash (laughs) to be able to analyze just to see what was going to be. Recycle. what is recyclable, right? What is going to the landfill and what is going to the compost? Because we have the compost here in the- You
1: got them out of the classroom, which I think-
2: We got them out of the classroom, and that was amazing. And so obviously some students almost tossed their cookies. I was maybe one of them. <laughs> it's really <laughs> interesting to really be able to be there. But we were dumpster diving to be able to do the repurposing, right? So the project was very simple. It's audit your waste for seven days. Everything that you use and you photograph it in a very uh, you know uh, objective way. Uh, one student, for example, brought a one foot by one foot astroturf uh, uh, piece, and every object from every napkin uh, wrapper from you know food, everything you photograph it and you must indicate where you, why you bought it, where you bought it, what is made out of. Oh, wow. If you demanufacture it, where its parts would go and where will they end up being? In the landfill, in the, you know, recycled or in the compost. After that, I mean, I've talked in many different ways. I've tried to talk, in, you know, sustainability and design and sustainability. This was the one that I awakened the students. I was able, mm. they were all to say, I had no idea and what was beautiful is that they created a book and they wrote all of their thinking and as they were learning and going through this and then their second book was called change of habit ah. what based on what you learn what habit you will change it really has been one of the most effective courses and here I'm talking undergrad students they're so committed so focused mm-hmm. but Everything else was more about bringing awareness. This was about changing habits and changing your mind, right? And that, I think, is a superpower that we have, is the ability to change behavior. So, and through something so creative as this, So based on that, then, you know, I was thinking, let's kind of bring a lot more structure to within design media arts so that we teach many more courses around sustainability. And that's when, you know, uh, my colleagues, Peter Lunenfeld and Erin Cooney, we got together, we conceived of this ecological arts and justice course series in which Erin Cooney teaches survey, right? Ecological arts and justice survey a class that we're going to make GE because we have interest from all across, um, campus. So we want to have 300 students learning about this. So then she teaches all of what artists designers are doing to be able to address the ecological crisis through, you know, uh, uh, again, design and art. Then Peter Lunenfeld, the same students, they join the class of Peter. And then they do in-depth research for specific uh, problems within Los Angeles. Everything is very local that we work with. And so they go through, you know, they go to field trips to, for example, Exide, um, uh, plant where all of the batteries were exuding all of these different leads and of course they were all located by design in the area that is park poor and uh, indigenous people, right. Latinos, black people. It's like all of the-, uh, the environmental uh, racism uh, of- Claro, completely. Yeah. So environmental just injustice at its core. So we address that. And then when they join my class, we do what it's ecological arts and justice, fieldwork practice. We actually go to the field, we learn about these specific things and we create projects based on that. So in this case, my class is studying um, the DDT uh, uh, illegal dumping that happened in front of Catalina Island and Palos Verdes by Montrose Chemical Corporation. So it really was something that is in our shore, right? And it's one of the worst ecological disasters that we are facing. So the students are relating to the ocean. They relate in many ways, but they also relate in terms of pollution and the, and the environmental injustice that is happening to all beings, right? In this case, we expand that concern to beyond the human to the more than human. And we connect with indigenous cultures, the Ahashiman and the Tongva, and how they relate to the land and the sea. So it's, it's an interesting way of being able to expand beyond that, that it is, you know, the very day-to-day practical, but also to kind of think, why is it? What, what is the crisis that we really are facing? Is it a crisis of the, you know, climate change or is it a crisis of relationships? A crisis of not knowing how to respect each other. And by each other, I mean, respect abalone as much as you respect the sea lion and your little sister. Right. So it's one of those kind of things that we really put to question a lot. So we go back again to that very strong analysis and understanding what the questions are that we need to ask deeply.
1: Well, our listeners can't see this, but I see Holly nodding and <laughs> to everything yes. you're saying, Rebecca.
3: <laughs> yes, totally. We do it in different ways, but it's, all, it's very similar. Yeah, we've increasingly taught um, design for behavior change as part of what we're working on. And we teach when you're really looking at who are your stakeholders, that includes everything that's in the supply chain, everyone in the supply chain, and the complete biosphere. And so my students actually list it out at, when they're listing out who their stakeholders are. And at the end, it's always the biosphere is a stakeholder Yeah, yeah. Uh, because that really changes how you think about it. And when they start out in my class, we teach a lot about perspective and how our ideas of how we got to where we got to come out of some of the beliefs that we have um, developed through the Enlightenment. You can trace a lot of it back to the Enlightenment and the ideas that they had of conquering nature and, and breaking things down into, you know, mechanistic type. Parts versus seeing, you know, systems thinking and life cycle thinking is about holistic thinking. And I bring in a lot of physics and, you know, it's when you start thinking about um, what quantum physics means and how there's like no, there is no distinction. The distinctions between us and everything around us, you know, like this table, this iPhone, whatever, the distinctions are largely distinctions of perception, not reality. And so, you know, once they understand that materials don't stay where you put them, we teach a lot of science as underlying, right? One of my students who is um, is actually a teacher in an uh, interior design program in a tech school you know, was getting pushback bringing some of these ideas forward as these things are political. There's hmm. nothing political about science. You know, there might right. be how we apply it, but at the end of the day, these are simple facts. We're talking about... You know, the second law of thermodynamics that says everything spreads, it's entropy. So if you put nuclear waste here or you put, you know, the DDT here, it's not going to stay here because that's not how nature works. So we have to understand how nature works and then design in ways that work with the system instead of against it. So once you know that you can't contain these materials and you know that these materials are dangerous, then how can you continue to use these materials? You can't because you can no longer, you can't segregate them. You can't keep them, you know, they will bleed into the environment. They will bleed into the communities. They will enter the bodies of the people nearby.
1: I always felt the same and thinking through how much we have to teach our design students. Uh, it always felt to me like they need an environmental science minor. <laughs> because
3: Yeah, and that's, that's kind of what we're giving them. Like we have yeah, a lot great. of heavy reading for a design program and a lot of it is based on science and, you know, behavior change studies and um, this kind of stuff that's um, physics uh, yeah, and understanding these basic principles. Because once you understand those things, you, you, you just, you can't design the same way. And so how we design is a product of how, of what we know. And once you know these things, you design differently.
1: That's, you yeah. know. We'll take a quick commercial break here and then get back to the conversation.
0: Where do young designers see themselves at the intersection of climate change and innovation, and how can we teach that intersection in the classroom? Designers are problem solvers, capable of imagining solutions for a more sustainable future. My name is Rachel Cifarelli and I'm part of the Climate Designers New Wave team. In the past few years, New Wave has released two reports exploring students' experiences of climate design education, or lack thereof, and what they hope to see in their classes. Now we want you, design educators, to use this research in your classrooms, and this summer we're giving educators a chance to talk to the New Wave team directly. Twice a month, the New Wave researchers will be available to walk you through our findings, answer any questions you have, and help you implement actionable project briefs directly into your classroom. We'll also show you how to use our media kit to easily share the research with your students and how they can sign up to be a participant. Head to climatedesigners.org slash edu slash new wave to sign up for a call with the New Wave team. Help us inform a new wave of design education, one that teaches every designer how to be a climate designer.
1: Well, I asked you too what worked well and how you do it. What isn't working well for you in in maybe the area that you're in or the institution you're in and what do you need more help with so you can do it better? Maybe I'm opening up a can of worms here, but I think that's what a lot of us are thinking. Like, man, I could I could do more of this if I didn't have to do X, right?
2: I mean, I think that that is definitely something that um, with my counterforce lab, um, when I'm teaching a course, it's 10 weeks, right? So I can only teach so much in 10 weeks. So I was kind of like thinking that I was not getting to be able to, uh, engage with the complexity of what, you know, we, we have called the hyper which is climate change and all of these very, very complex projects that engage multiple disciplines. So what I did then by opening the counterforce is immediately bring into the team at the core, like associate director is in the, comes from the department of ecology and evolutionary biology. And then my other, uh, the word co-associate directors comes from, uh, world arts and culture and her expertise is engaging with, uh, indigenous cultures in an ethical yeah. way. So I needed that anthropological. Uh, background. So I know that interdisciplinarity is what works. One of the things that I would love to be able to do much more is co-teach. We do not have the funding here at UCLA to be able to co-teach because my very first class, I don't know how I was able to slip this, you know, in terms of budget, but I engage in bringing in a sociologist and a uh, someone from uh, uh, English to be able to help me create the, what was then called my brand laboratory, where we were questioning big, big issues. And co-teaching is a way of being able to really break the boundaries of discipline that are so, so stifling. So if I would be able to have funding to be able to co-teach a class with again, my evolutionary biologist, and then the anthropologist, we would be able to really do what we are doing at the Counterforce Lab. My Counterforce Lab, for example, we have a project that we are uh, asking the question, you know, if I really want to explore this idea of interspecies friendships with wild animals, then how can I create a a project in which an animal is my client and I do this Mm. work for the client. So I chose to do my lab, you know, we chose to do an interspecies friendship with birds and specifically indicator species of our area and to create wildlife corridors through the sculptures that we're creating. And thus we asked the question, what does the bird want? What does, you know, everything is designed for the bird's needs and all of these 10 species, and we call it the biophilia treehouse. And the idea is to be able to kind of grow together this uh, sculpture, because we also are engaging um, uh, the uh, ecology department with uh, uh, some professors that are helping us understand our plants that are specific to these birds. But we want to be able to create this sculpture full of plants, native plants that constitute a complete ecosystem to LA's most threatened birds. And also what's critical here that when milled in sequence, a series of biophilia tree houses form these wildlife corridors so that these birds can reconnect from this fractured habitat. And especially Mm -hmm. like in LA that it is so dense that you would think, you know, birds can fly from one place to another. No, they are very, very homebound. I mean, they begin to mate amongst themselves. Their genetic material begins to weaken and the colonies collapse. Yeah. And what's interesting is that when you create these wildlife corridors, that's when we also address these environmental inequities that are happening in especially in the south area of between Los Angeles, downtown and Long Beach. So that's the corridor we would include our biofilia tree houses. And so it's exciting to be able to know that then through class you do certain things, but through my lab, I created this lab, just me and my shadow, my first years, just to be able to make sure that I could address projects that would require much more complexity. So, of course, for this one, funding, right? We need funding. So grant writing, grant writing until, you know, you have words coming out of your ears and, and Excel sheets of all your budgets. But. Um, it it's the way that we can actually do some of these projects. So we need, in a way, interdisciplinarity,
3: time, and money. <laughs> well, of course, it's always time and money. I mean, yeah, you know, we're a program of adjuncts. We're the only person who's an employee is our director, who we hired, who was a uh, alumni. We couldn't find oh, okay. anyone who could be our director no. because we had to, no one. Else. We interviewed, but couldn't find anyone who understood our program well enough, or we felt we could trust with our program. So I ended up hiring an alumni to run the program. So obviously more funding, but really not for us so much as we just want to get more students through the program. And so we want yeah. scholarship money. And, you know, when you're in an art college, I think it's hard for people to understand that the, the business out there needs our students. There are, you know, we're seeing it all the time. The businesses are struggling. They're not really sure quite how to incorporate these um, new, new demands on them. And so there's all these different models out there and, you know, different ways of trying to solve these problems And I think a lot of people don't know that they can bring designers in. You know, designers yeah, yeah. for decades have complained that business hasn't taken them seriously. Um, and yet here we are. Where we really can actually help create this new future if we have enough of us who are trained and understand how to do these things. And it's really what business needs. There's never been a better opportunity to demonstrate our value to business and to society as a whole um, than, than now. And so I think there needs to be more collaboration, more awareness, more funding. Um, and I think, you know, uh, one of the things I know we had mentioned. Um, leading up to this uh, discussion was, you know, how do you get this out in other schools or how do you get this? I mean, I think what we need is teachers to be sent to our programs and get trained. I didn't want to be a teacher necessarily. I needed this content to get out there. Mm. And so, like, I'm doing it because there was no one doing it. You know, it would be great if I could step back and do other things if teachers came and took our program and then took everything back and taught it in undergrad so that there's you know i think there needs to be uh we would call it ecological literacy you know what we're doing now is really remedial right mhm our program was really meant to be sort of a triage program again like this stuff clearly wasn't being taught and should have been taught right but nothing was being taught like this in any kind of a program, not in business, not in anything. And so we just stepped in and created this program because it just needed to be done. We needed design. We knew that the demand was going to be there. Sooner or later, business was going to come and start demanding people being able to envision and create this new future that nobody quite can put their finger on yet. Right. And that's what designers are great at. We make something from nothing. We synthesize, we do all of these things. Um, and so there was a need that was coming, but nobody was filling that need. Is this the right way to do it going forward? Or do we need to like, think about how do you instill environmental literacy from kindergarten on?
4: Right. Or they go to college. Yeah.
3: Right. And then how do you make it part of every college program? You know, I mentioned this to you, Eric, but one, Wendy, that one of our other instructors, Also works for the University of Wisconsin and started out with just one school and now has slowly worked sustainability into being a core requirement or at least a core offering. I'm I'm not sure the specifics, but campus-wide, I mean, system-wide, available to every student. Um, And that has nothing to do with design. That's just like everybody needs to have a certain level of environmental literacy because, again, it's the world we live in. Yeah, And we no longer pretend that our actions are unrelated to, you know, pretty clear that that's not the case, unrelated to what happens with the rest of the world. Yeah. Um, well, I've talked
1: to my students about this particular issue, Holly, and I'm wondering what both of you think about this and that should this idea of sustainability, ecological literacy um, be a foundational thing that they have to take or... Or not, because I've had some different student opinions on it.
3: I think it should be.
0: Yeah, Um, you
2: know, I, I, yeah, I agree. I mean, we really need to, um, Holly, I just, I agree with you on that because it just feels that um, in our world, we are dealing, I don't know if it happens to you with your students, Holly, but we um, deal with their uh, not knowing how to express the ecological grief that they are feeling. Hmm. Right. So there's something that they know that they want to at least understand clearly what's happening and what to do with it. When you do not know, most of the times you end up just truly kind of um, shutting down, like your heart shuts down because you know you're feeling something. But it's as if the world is gaslighting you to not really letting you know that. Yes, this is happening, this is real, there is grief and we need to be able to face this. So when I'm teaching at the very beginning in the first week, we all feel it, we feel that grief. And I said, well, we need to always remain sensitive to be able to then create from that space. But I feel that the more this is across the board um, as a structure, like a foundation, then we will then give meaning again to design. I do not find meaning in designing for consumerism. There is nothing there that it is is compatible with life on earth, Mm -hmm. right? So I think that if we're able to begin to think much more of how do we rethink, redefine what design is for our time, then it really becomes foundational. There's no question about it. So I think that, you know, what we learn is that unless you're able to think from the very beginning, the way that, you know, Holly, you express it so clearly, it's that from the very beginning that you begin to think of ways in which every decision is part of this life cycle. And if it is not, stop thinking about it. We don't have any other reason to think of design in any other way. So I feel that it is exciting. I don't know um, if departments, many departments are not ready to let go of their Bauhaus model. Right. Which it was exciting at one time. And it truly had, if you think about where it came from and it came with such in strong social um, causes, social justice ideas, but somehow it became incredibly commercialized. I think okay. honestly, also when it wouldn't when it jump the pond. So, I think that here it became more to be obedient to industry, and we cannot afford that at all. We have to stop that and on the on the other hand, we need to be obedient to life. we need to be celebrating life and designing from that point of view alone. So I think that you know it's certainly foundational, and it certainly is that well, you know certain schools might need to just kind of you know collect cobwebs in their uh, <laughs> ideals of Continuing to design the way that we have designed so far. And then new design schools will be emerging the way that your program is, Noli.
3: Yeah, I think the rea- reality of designing going forward will be multidisciplinary mm-hmm. um, because it's so complicated. Once you start, once you acknowledge that everything is interconnected, yeah. there you can't siloize as easily. And you can't solve these problems. Like a single designer on their own would really struggle to solve these problems because of the complexity, well, everything you need to know. They do need the sociologists. They need the material scientists. Um, you know, a company that I used to work for recently put out a, a call for an actual sustainability scientist. And that's a far cry from where they were You know, about a decade ago where sustainability was barely something that they understood and yeah. now they understand we need the science. We, you know, we have to get real about this. And I think that that is going to change everything. And I, I also think that we do need to change the profession from being um, subservient to society. You know, there's like the triple bottom line that John Elkington had developed, and then he's backed away from that. And we use the concentric model where it's the planet. And then society is a subset of the planet and um business is a subset of society and that sets mm-hmm. up the proper hierarchy um business serves a great role commercialism serves a great role but we should not be serving commercialism it should be serving us and if it isn't serving us yeah. then there's something wrong and it all we all need to you know all wealth comes from the planet and so you know you thats it's kind of like I always told my designers, from from even from the early 90s when I was talking about this to the AIGA, if you're not designing in a way that is sustainable, you're just simply designing garbage. And who wants to design garbage? Um, if it isn't going to function in the world that we live in, and now that we know that, why do we keep doing it? And it's the same with, you know, and the profession. So the profession needs... To be a profession means you have your own internal moral compass and ethics. And design has let go of that a long time ago. They don't seem to believe that they have any responsibilities. And this was ultimately one of the reasons why we started the program because we needed to step outside any existing organizations or models because I wasn't finding that anywhere. So we talk a lot with our students about professional responsibility being. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to show a client something that's unsustainable because you know, you're the professional, you've studied this, you know, the impacts of that material being a, a negative. You don't need to show that to your client. You can only show them sustainable things because as with a professional, it'd be like a if you were a doctor, that's a profession. The doctor has a Hippocratic oath. The doctor should only be promoting things that are good for the patient, right? Right. And that's not the attitude that we've had for the last, you know, 50, 60 years.
1: Yeah. What do you think it's going to take? Uh, Because both of you are talking about these amazing work that you're doing, this very logical thing about we need to take care of where we live. How do we get more design educators, college administrators, maybe this is an impossible question to ask, more on board with rethinking how we're teaching design i I know holly had a great idea earlier about we need to have our educators go through this ecological literacy program you know maybe it's at mcad you know maybe it's somewhere in 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 their your university but how do we get this moving faster because time is really important right now in terms of when we talk about climate
2: i think that you know from our side um Here at the university, one of the great things at UCLA is that you have everything around you, all of these different programs and it's incredible and departments. It's incredible how we, there's so many of us interested in and doing work and research around um, ecological issues and we are talking to each other. Like for example, when I I create uh, through the lab, I do lecture series and then we invite each other and it's completely interdisciplinary. And then I am uh, a shared faculty with humanities, with the lens, the laboratory of Um, uh, environmental narrative strategies with uh, Ursula Heise. I am speaking with so many of the professors in the Institute of Environment and Sustainability. So this interdisciplinarity that we both are talking about is critical to be able to engage in these conversations. And I think that what we have found is that we are weaving a lot of different um, you know, uh, ways of teaching what we are again, trying to figure out how to do this pod teaching, because I do believe that that is the way in which our students. Right now I have a student from English in my, um, very design based course. And then I had another one from film and another one from the Anderson school. So of business. So it just seems that that kind of interdisciplinarity is critical. Now, another thing, one thing that I didn't mention regarding the Biophilia Treehouse is that this biophilia treehouse, the places where we grow a biophilia treehouse and create the sculpture is in primary schools, right? Along the way in primary schools, because one is, becomes an outdoor laboratory for them. And then they learn about all of these ecosystems. And the other one is that, as I mentioned before, is like, I, if you at a very early age, you learn to fall in love with the smallest of creatures and that you treat them with so much care and respect as you treat your little brother or sister. That is how you begin to kind of yourself as a little one, you begin to know that you are interconnected, deeply interconnected and that the life of these other creatures matters. So it's as if you become sensitive to other ways of living in the world, of being and living in the world. So for me it's like, I'm teaching here in the university, but I know I mostly need to affect the little ones in kindergarten mm-hmm. and primary school. So I'm stretching that. So I'm we talk about decolonializing the university by taking it to the community, right? And by right. taking it to the little ones. So I think that those, those uh, would be our strategies and I'm, I'm, I'm doing working.
3: And I've always been a firm believer in models. And I think, you know, one way to jumpstart this could be um, to get, uh, have a summit and bring a bunch of master's level under and undergraduate instructors together and hammer out what is the basic curriculum that we should be teaching. And particularly in undergrad, I mean, I'm definitely Mm -hmm. a grad school person. I don't. I don't really know. In fact, my one student, I was really interested to see how her project develops. I think she's going to do it for her thesis to try and figure out what do you teach a tech school? Like taking what she's learned in the master program, which is definitely master's level content and presented in that way. But how would you distill that down for a tech school audience? And what do they need to know? Or how would you present the information? So I think I think that's very interesting, this whole idea of how would you translate it down into a bachelor level program. And then eventually other, you know, uh, secondary education kind of programs, but um, in primary. But I would love to see something like that. Like, let's figure out what the base level, you know, because someone, there are these accreditation programs. There's all these college based uh, organizations and things. What would you know? I think there's ways of um, of hammering it out and then presenting it as a model, and then figuring out once you have your model, then what do you need to do to bring everyone up to be able to teach that yeah. model? What are the yeah. gaps? I tend to be very systemic thinking. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, love
1: it, but no, that now that's that sounds really interesting because I've been thinking many many years about this. In that I've gone to conferences and I've gone to different educator panels on like decolonization, or I've gone to panels on co-design or you name it. Right. And when I'm sitting there and a lot of them, I'm thinking, Oh, you're not even considering like the environmental sustainability of it. Right. And then I go to the environmental sustainability talks and they're not considering the other stuff that I just heard from other panels. And I feel like this holistic view of it, um, isn't quite formed yet. So this, I'm not going to call it a Manhattan project of <laughs> design educators, because that had a negative outcome, but some sort of like really um, important meeting, whether it's informal or formal, and and there's a, uh, that's the agenda. That's the agenda for that, because I've learned a lot from the colleagues of mine that are teaching DEI work and how embedded that is in, in climate justice. You can't and separate them.
3: Thinking unsustainably is, is very, that's one of the things my students kind of have to unthread as they go through the program, is to re, they start to realize how embedded these ideas of the enlightenment are in everything that we do. Mm-hmm. And to start to unthread that, like if you were to just sort of, like we did with our program to some degree, we're just like cutting bait with the past and be like, if we're just going to do something that would be the program, like the program I would have wanted, my dream program or something like that. We just sat down and we just wrote it. Yeah. Like this, you know, we had spent 20 years kind of building up to that, figuring out 15 maybe years of my career, trying to figure out what should design be? You know, what, how should we design sustainably? And then we just wrote the program. And so I think formal or informal, sometimes I think informal to start a model is good because yeah. right away, if you make it formal, then it it threatens existing, you know, establishment um, True. organizations and whatnot. But if you, if you offer it up as this new mental model, and that's also something we use in our program a lot is mental model. So, you know, it's, it's a new mental model, you know, and then figure out how do you, How do you um, implement that? And I think that one of the
2: things that I, that I like working or think that we need is to work at every scale, right? I think that, for example, I see my counterforce lab really working at a small scale, right? The small scale, meaning that we really are, uh, uh, we have a lot of alumni, but at a given time, we are no more than 15 people working on a project and this is with you know students from all disciplines and that's very exciting but that's a small scale and the relationship that i have you know uh, what what i love is that for example ucla has the sustainable la grant challenge it's a it's an it's a big it's like at a, at a really high um uh, uh, scale because it is a university working with the city of los angeles and it is a, a an amazing interdisciplinary university-wide initiative that is aimed to applying UCLA research expertise and education to help transform Los Angeles into the world's most sustainable meal. Yeah. Super mega city, yes. we supposed by nineteen fifty, right? But it's the idea that to be able to, at a university level, working in interdisciplinarity, like the the amazing programs that they uh, uh, that they put together, to be able to like take this humongous project of making LA sustainable. So it's interesting how, for many many uh, uh, years, I would say even. Decades, UCLA has been very focused on how do we make ourselves sustainable? How do we first start with the university? How do we create these different programs and programs within different departments mm. are you know popping up in every area from um, you know architecture to uh, you know here in, in design in, in English with Ursula. And that we're all kind of beginning to connect ourselves. So I think that what we were talking about a little while ago about continues to have the conversation between disciplines, that we can begin to think much more on how to tackle this uh, uh, very large project. And I'm so happy to know that they're beginning to consider the arts as important aspect of this conversation. It hasn't been easy. I have to say that I've been inserting myself in so many meetings where people kind of always like, and why are you here? Right. <laughs> but I think slowly, slowly we have beginning. I relate we have to that. A, Yes, right. <laughs> to, to have a lot of um, um, the ability to tackle complexity, the ability to come to the, even from the very simple thing of let's tell different stories of how humanity ends or continues or goes forward. Uh, I think that us imagining a world anew, Mm -hmm. having that ability to imagine where humanity can go and be inspiring and be methodical because you know, one of the amazing things about design is that it utilizes so many of the same processes as science observation, repetition, prototyping, like all the things that you need to do to prove a system that is solid and strong. So I do feel that it is a great time now. To be alive, because we are beginning to talk to each other, the disciplinary silos and really beginning to kind of almost like grow tentacles and connecting. right? And that is so inspiring. I, I like I, the
1: I optimism. Really... I love
3: it. <laughs> yes. I told my students that you have never had a better time to be a designer because everything has to be redesigned. Everything. and so, yes. and, it's a, and like we were talking about earlier, it's a great time for design to assert why it is important. You know, like I've seen it within companies. So, you know, like I got when I was a creative director at Target, I was supporting their, you know, sustain. I got them started on the path to sustainability, you know, just completely by poking around in parts of the company and asking lots of questions and pushing. And then I got them to hire a sustainability director. And then, you know, the sustainability directors are focused on, which is what most of the jobs are out there in sustainability. If they're either environmental science, which is all about, you know, measuring or you're, you know, a sustainability director, which is all about goal setting for the company, you know, setting metrics, that kind of thing. So once you've done all of that and you really need to fundamentally change the way that business does business or you need to fundamentally change what its products are that it's making or selling or whatever, who's going to do that? Who's gonna reimagine what these things are gonna be? Who can invent something out of nothing? Who can, who can synthesize all of these very complex things and come up with something or convince someone that they should? This is where design comes in. It's just yeah. the missing link to move yeah. from where we are now where we're kind of stalled because no one can quite figure out how to start changing these things that we have, our infrastructures, our, you know, our buildings and everything. It's all come, if you think about it, like building really led the way with, you know, architects. That's how, it wasn't the MBA saying we have to design buildings differently. It was the architect saying we're going to design buildings differently and then doing yeah. it. And so the doing is where we come in.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that, you know, the, we have that ability to imagine and to invent and to do all of these steps to get there. And to uh, kind of, again, is like sensitizes again to, to consider all beings as our companions. And therefore, when we're thinking of solely extraction or using the world instead of cohabitating with other beings in the world, it is something that everything needs to be redesigned, reinvented, rethought in terms of our companions and
3: companion species. I sometimes call it designing for life. Yes. 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 How, yeah. how very simple, right? <laughs>
4: yeah.
3: yeah. Is that what we're doing today? No. No. no.
1: Not at all. No. Well, uh, one more question for you, and uh, this is kind of setting up the the next part of this series, which is um, a live panel event through the AIGA DEC. And where some more granular questions can be asked of you too uh, in the future by educators and design students, whoever wants to be there on on how to do what you're doing. And so last question for you really is um, out there in the world, who are you looking at who is doing uh, this good work, similar work to you, who's inspiring you? And uh, tell me about um, maybe a project that that you assigned that has been your favorite.
3: Yeah, that's a tough question. Because when I'm looking at, I'm looking at a lot of different disciplines often, um, but I tend to look at science is what tends to drive me. That's what I, I think that's where the innovations are coming from. And then we're adapting. As designers, we're always kind of, a, we're applied science, right? Yeah. Replied arts. Um, and so I'm looking at artists, but I'm also looking at science and kind of synthesizing the two uh, and paying attention to uh, what's on the horizon. Um, so for me, that, and then I think it's my students yeah. are also who I look to um, because they they're inspiring. They're very inspiring. And that's the reason why I do what I do when I, you know, when you finally see that light bulb go off and it all starts to fall yeah. into place. There's just nothing like witnessing not. that. And so I think for me, that's where I get a lot of my inspiration from is my students. And then you in terms project of projects, that
1: you, uh, do you have a project that the students have really loved?
3: Well, my projects tend to be um where they if my my core class that I teach is the practice of sustainability. So the Students get to pick something, it's usually related to what their future thesis is going to be, and they can pick, you know, whatever they want. Sometimes they're designing, anyway, so I'll tell you more about what they're designing. But the the project is basically, we take the whole semester and I show them how these concepts actually weave into a practice of design. How do you apply life cycle thinking and at what stages? How do you reframe projects? How do you go out and do observations so that you really understand the core issue and not make designer assumptions assumptions that you think you, you know what the solution is before you've even looked at the problem kind of thing? So we, you know we start out at the beginning, framing the project all the way up through you know putting together a concept presentation deck, doing lifecycle analysis along the way, and doing the research, looking into materials, but they will design things from. Um, like one was designing a way to um, manage innovation and within a packaging company so that they can um, start to adopt sustainability. Another one created an app for um, changing sustainable behavior and she's now launched that as a business and she's in she's in App 2.0. So a lot of it is the the projects are all based on what the students want to work on, but the process is all the same. It's just the design process. With sustainability applied and then, well,
1: that makes sense because you're giving the students the choice of what their values are, and you allow right. them to choose. so
3: again, I'm working at a master's level, so they already know how to make projects. many of them are professional designers already, and whatever they're. Yeah, that's system. true. Well, it means that I have to be versed enough in everything from fashion to architecture.:
1: yeah, that's tough
3: <laughs> right. Uh, but I kind of like that because I kind of like to dapple in all those kinds of things anyway um. So that's, but that's really the core project that we do. And so it's, um, they decide the subject. So it's a little different. I think you need a little more structure for an undergrad.
1: Yeah. Well, Rebecca, you teach a lot of undergrads. So how would you answer that?
2: Yes. Um, well, you know, I think that um, just the same way that I would, that I create my own projects um, as an artist or or I I just finished a a very large um, uh, three sixty immersive environmental piece that focused on the DDT um, uh or dump in the ocean, right? And um I collaborated with so many scientists. I definitely agree that definitely I need to be uh engaging and getting inspired and understanding what is the point of view from different fields. So, um, like in this case with the DDT uh, dump, I started, uh, talking to Rosanna Schaff, who is the environmental reporter for the LA times. So as soon as I saw the article, I gave her a call. We immediately entered on zoom. She invited me to the zoom with all the scientists discussing the problem from the Um, uh, Dave Valentine from UC Santa Barbara, who is the first one who went down and documented the barrels uh, full of DDT down at the, uh, on the ocean to the uh, marine mammal expert. So it's just everyone to the chemist. So I met everyone. And the next thing was my having individual meetings with each one of them. Hmm. So everything was, you know, I'm a daughter of scientists. So definitely I begin seeing the world from a scientific point of view. And so I teach in the same manner. As soon as we begin a class, we set up, I set up a a very broad uh, topic, right? For example, we're going to be addressing the pollution of the ocean. And then I bring in the scientists and then I give them a whole week to begin to think what is worth asking
4: Mm -hmm.
2: from everything that you have read and that you have you know, kind of like begins to kind of, there's certain topics that begin to be interesting. What is worth asking and what is worth investigating for you for the next 10 weeks? And that's where their topic begins. It is really through kind of understanding the subject matter and then ideation, right? If this is worth asking, how is it that we then talk about it? How do we create this? So my classes are not medium specific, right? So they can be a book, they can be a film, it could be something interactive, uh, it could be a story, right? So I think that this is where I feel that if we allow the students to first understand the problem and then ask the questions themselves, is when we really have them engage fully uh, so I think that to me those are the the, the classes. That's exactly what I'm teaching right now, sure. and they are right now in the in the, in their moment of of beginning to produce their beautiful ideas. And in terms of inspiration, you know, for me it's like um, there are some amazing writers that I am fascinated by. And right now I'm going to tell you what I'm reading, and that is so it's making me so. Um, Excited and positive about the world. It is um, Ways of Being Alive by Baptiste Morisot. And the other one that I loved is um, Braiding Sweet Press oh, yeah. by uh, Kimmerer, which is so to. Oh my goodness, my students are loving them. And so I think, again, is like very much all areas from science to science fiction. I really am very interested in science fiction. Uh that's many ways the way the way that we one can imagine a future. Uh Octavia Butler, I just I'm in love with all of her mm. all of her novels. Mm. <laughs> so I just, you know, but one of the things that I do think is we begin by helping our students not um remain siloed in the discipline, but to begin to connect with other um or uh, uh, areas of study so that their world expands. It is in that understanding other worlds that we also expand ourselves to understanding other lives.
3: I think that that's really the key. You know, when I was coming up, it was all about um, star designer worship. Me too. And every convention that, you know, or conference that you went to, it was just portfolio reviews. We just want to see your portfolio. And then I went to the 2000 AIGA conference in Vancouver. Oh, I was there too. Yeah. Yeah. And afterwards all, I, I could just kept hearing all these designers complaining about like, what were all these scientists? And, you know, Michael Braungard was there and uh,
1: I was in the audience and, and, with them. Uh,
3: yeah. And they were all like, well, why and this is, that was actually sort of, it was the response to that uh, conference that really drove me to go ahead and start our, our program because I'm like, I need to get out. I need to get away from just hanging around with designers and I need to go out and start doing other things and creating our own thing because that's not how I see design. I don't see design as just style imitation. I think that's Mm -hmm. not what we should be doing. We should be much more. and And I'm seeing that now, like people have moved away from that. It's less about just who's the hot designer now. I couldn't even name any. For you. I don't pay attention. Uh, We are. (laughs) We need it. I'm interested in how design interacts in the world and what it can do.
1: Yeah. Well, Rebecca and Holly, thank you so much uh, for your insights today. And I look forward to the the next event for you sometime in the near future um, where we can go even deeper into this topic with uh, guests um, joining us uh, live on Zoom. Thank you so much. This podcast is co-produced by Bianca Sandico and me. A big special thanks to Ellen Keith Shaw and Christine Pilot for their gorgeous work on our new branding. Batul Rashik and Mark O'Brien for their continued design help. Brandy Nichols and Michelle Wynn for their strategic guidance and always supporting me on this podcast. If you enjoy the work we all do here and you have a spare minute or two, We would truly appreciate it if you left a rating and review over at Apple Podcasts. The more folks that review our program, the higher the algorithm pushes up Climify in the search results. And in turn, the more likely we all can learn how to become climate designers.